You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. You're listening to Episode 8 of Messy Jesus Business. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now on to our guests. In this episode, we'll hear from two nurses about their experiences during the coronavirus pandemic and how they became nurses and what nursing means to them and how it relates to their faith. The first guest that you'll hear from is my friend Jason Odner. Jason Odner is a registered nurse, a radical Quaker, and a health justice activist from Phoenix, Arizona. He is co-founder and president of Phoenix Allies for Community Health, a volunteer-driven nonprofit community whose flagship project is a free clinic serving about a thousand undocumented families in the Phoenix area. It's pretty amazing. He's also a co-founder of the Phoenix Urban Health Collective, which is a street medic collective that has helped train protest medics in more than 15 cities. Jason is currently working in a COVID ICU and is joyfully married to my dear friend, Elizabeth Clara, uh, and is the proud father of their five-month-old baby, Levi. Oh my goodness, I love them so much. What a beautiful family. My other guest today is another nurse who I deeply love. This is my college friend, one of my closest friends, Laura Ankeny, who is another nurse. Laura Ankeny grew up on a farm in Northwest Iowa, and she grew up in the Catholic faith. She attended Loris College in Dubuque, where, where I befriended her back in the day, and then graduated from the University of Iowa's College of Nursing. Now she works as a nurse in a hospital in Minneapolis and lives in St. Paul, Minnesota with her cats. She is an affiliate of my religious community, the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, a very loving Christian, and a proud godmother to her niece and an aunt to her nephews. I believe you'll love her too, but of course I'm very biased. Enjoy! Hi, Jason. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Sister Julia, it's good to be here. I just would like to start uh, hearing a little bit, if you don't mind, about how you ended up where you are now. So I actually came to nursing through human rights work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, nursing is my third career. Um, I come from an engineering background originally, and then I was a professional political operative for a great number of years, and then transitioned from that into nursing. And um, I had been working with a group called No More Deaths on the U.S.-Mexico border, doing humanitarian aid runs, looking for people who um, were lost in the desert to try to provide aid. 
I love No More Deaths. <laughs> right. So it's, it's an immigrant rights organization. And it was with No More Deaths that I got to work with a couple of nurses that were really, really inspiring to me. Um, and at that time, I had been planning on going back to university to get a degree in science or sociology, something that would um, let me move sort of for more of the type of political work I was doing at the time into something more human rights related. Mm -hmm. It made me realize that, um, my time with number desk made me realize that um, going back to the hard skills and um, the practical hands-on skills of nursing would actually be the most useful pathway forward and the one that would provide me the most flexibility to figure out um, my own path forward as I discerned it. Hmm. Changed my major and became a nurse. Hmm. How long ago was that? Oh gosh, I've been a nurse for 11 years now. 11 <laughs> years, yeah. It doesn't seem like that. I'm, gosh, I'm getting older. Um, <laughs> and, and nursing school, you know, was a number of years by itself. So that would have been 2006. Mm -hmm. so that was a strange year. That was the year I spent half the year in the desert with no more deaths and half the year out south of Homa um, doing mm -hmm. relief and just learning a lot and really getting radicalized, really seeing how the system was just never really intended to care for our most vulnerable neighbors or people who were marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, it was a strange time. And I think a lot of who I am today was sort of forged during those couple of years. Mm -hmm. With no more deaths, there was Around that time, there had been two No More Deaths volunteers who were arrested while providing humanitarian aid for a group of immigrants who were found dying in the desert. And um, they had been taking these people to Tucson for medical care, operating under a protocol that the former head of the Tucson sector, Border Patrol, who agreed was completely illegal. Um, these people were sitting up in the backseat of a marked vehicle. They weren't hidden in the trunk or nothing like that. Mm. Um, but the politics of the day had changed and it was, um, I think, beneficial to certain people's political careers to have a culture war about it. And two volunteers, Daniel and Shanti, got swept up as um, victims in this, in this culture war. They um, charged with human trafficking for following this accepted protocol. Because they were nursing and caring to people who are dying. Yeah, and they weren't nurses, but yeah, they were humanitarian aid workers. And okay. They were trying to save people's lives. Wow. And doing it in a way that there was a community consensus about. Not only were right-wing politicians like calling them traitors, and they were being charged with some very serious federal crimes. Um, but you know, there was after every newspaper article, there was a string of comments written in about treason is punishable by death and these people should be oh. I was like god my whole community has gone crazy like mm -hmm. crazy talk it's not this isn't just a matter of opinion like this is this is a psychosis you know mm -hmm. um and that was the same year that I spent so much time around the same time this was when Katrina happened and um I spent a lot of time out in Louisiana, both during the early days after Katrina and also returning, you know, a year later and seeing how communities were first, not just passively abandoned, but like can abandonment 
be an active act. Yeah, yeah, neglect. Like, then it's neglect, right? But like they had been selected to be left behind. Mm. And um, in a way that felt very intentional, that felt very calculated. Um, and so I think I went from seeing the world as one where systems that have been designed to make the world better weren't working well, to seeing the world as one in which the systems were never designed to protect the poor or marginalized or people of color or anyone else who was deemed expendable or exploitable. And so it really helped me understand how messy the world was mm -hmm. and that the answers that I was seeking and that better world that we so desperately need was not going to be found through like incremental conventional process. Although that certainly has its value as a harm reduction method, as a way to, you know, I would rather the organizing and the work that has to be done, it's safer for everybody if we're doing that hard work in the context of less oppressive governments rather than more oppressive governments. Mm -hmm. so value in voting and there's value in conventional political organizing, but it's not going to bring us the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not going to build a world that's safe for everybody. Um, it just determines the environment and the context in which we're organizing, which is more than nothing. Mm. You know, thanks for saying that because, well, well, you're, you're bringing me to tears, honestly, as you share this heartache. And I'm inspired by your perseverance, your dedication, even in the midst of the mess and the struggle. But I'm also thinking about um, something I've been praying with lately and how the reign of God is not like necessarily this utopian vision that we, we probably desire <laughs> um, in the way that we're going to encounter it here on earth. But it, it, the reign of God, as I mean, when I pray with the, um, the parables of Jesus, it's, it becomes apparent to me, it's about the little things, right? Like it is the woman with the yeast. It is the, it is the mustard seed. It is the, the tiny little things that like sprout an eruption of change, but um, and transform something and create something new. And yet it's so subtle, like yeast and its work is practically invisible to us. Right. And, but that, that ultimately is what the kingdom of God is, is this newness and this flourishing that we're brought, um, we're invited to. And that means we have to be tending to the little ones and making ourselves littler and paying attention to the little and with the marginal, you know, marginalized. And certainly it is a both and, right? And there are some conventional things that we have to do to bring about the flourishing. Um, but on the other hand, it, it is noticing where our gaze is. Mm, amen. Um, so, yeah. And then, so you, I know you as um, through our, our, my dear friend, Liz, your wife and another nurse. And, you know, when she first told me, I don't, I think I can say this when she first told me about you and, and how she was falling in love with you. She, uh, she shared how you really helped her to be a better Christian and, um, and how, 
she she just kind of gave me like this little rundown of all the things you were involved in and how like you were this incredible nurse you were a street medic uh medic you are a street medic you organized and and created a network for street medics to serve uh protesters uh i think you met at a free clinic for people right um and you um i think for as long as i've known you have always been um, providing shelter and refuge for people who are homeless or refugees and immigrants and people that just needed safety right in your home. So like works of mercy and, and following Jesus's teachings, uh, it seems to come pretty naturally to you. <laughs> and yeah, thank you. Hey, I want to start by saying I think it's it's funny that Liz thinks to make her because she's really the wiser and the better of, of us too. But, this is an amazing human being, and I feel very deeply privileged to, to be spending my life with her. Um, but there's, there's a lot of messiness in the world. There's a lot of broken stuff. And the first step has to be that we just figure out how to build the infrastructure, the social infrastructure that we need to care for people's direct needs in a way that combines like social change and direct service in a way that those opportunities to build meaningful egalitarian relationships with people who are most affected. So that's because that's what keeps it real and that's what helps us understand what really needs to be done. And that's what lets us take input and feedback and guidance and leadership from people who are most directly marginalized. Because I think humanity's greatest strength is also humanity's greatest weakness. And that is our ability to adapt. Right? And so much of the brokenness and beauty of humanity comes from this. And there's no other species that could live in the Arctic Circle or the Sahara Desert or an island in the middle of the Pacific, right? Like humans, no matter what environment you put us in, we are hardwired to just find a way to adapt. Mm. And that's and amazing and inspirational. It's also sometimes problematic because it is in our nature sometimes to just adapt to it that we should not be adapting to. <laughs> like, like we, we see people sleeping on the streets day after day. And the first time you see it when you're a kid, you feel a sense of outrage. Like, wait, but why doesn't he have a home? And then you're just like, oh, that's just how it is. Some people sleep on the streets. Mm -hmm. You see people being victimized by oppressive political systems or legal systems that disproportionately affect certain communities over others. Um, and maybe the first time you learn about these injustices, it feels a sense of outrage. And then we just say, well, that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Injustices were akin to the laws of thermodynamics or the laws of gravity, just preordained mm. forces that exist outside of us and are somehow unchangeable rather mm -hmm. than structures that we built as humans that we could rebuild tomorrow we all woke up and decided to change. Hmm. And so I think the work has to start with a spiritual process of reclaiming, of forgetting our assumptions, of letting go of this sense of this is just the way the world is. So I don't want to say reclaiming our outrage because I, I think outrage is a healthy place for it to start, but it's not where sustainable work comes from. Hmm. The work comes from hope and inspiration, hmm. but it, I think outrage has its place in, in kickstarting that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's like the fire has to be keep burning in us, right? And 
fostering those fires, but we don't want the fire to become dangerous and destructive and cause more harm, but rather like fire can be this energy that nourishes and gives life. Yeah. What I'm hearing is how uh, faithfulness for you is, is more about never becoming comfortable with the status quo and remaining, remaining devoted. Is, is that, is that another way? Is, is that what you'd say? I think so. I, I think that so many of the, most of the problems and injustices and suffering that lays before us in this day and age exists first and foremost as a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. Right? Because when we say this is just the way it is, this is just the way the world is, that's what that is. That's a failure of imagination. We have failed to imagine the world differently and to, to take joy and inspiration in the act of imagining. And when I say that, that we need hope for it to be sustainable, for change movements to be sustainable, that's what that hope is. is it's, it's the act of joyful imagination of believing like, we could do this different. Now, like, is the pathway to restructuring this going to be an easy one? Hell no. Like, stuff is enmeshed. Stuff is like, there's a lot of vested interests that are making a lot of money off of the way that it's currently structured. But like, it could be done. And that is an act of imagination. It's a thing that we all took such joy in as children. But as adults, we so often just say, this is the way the world is. Mm. And so I think faith has to, faith has to be an act of imagination, an act of reclaiming our joy and imagination and having the courage to imagine the world differently and to remember that the world as it is right now only exists right now because someone imagined that, that way. Someone imagined, hey, I could make a lot of money off mass incarceration if we built for-profit prisons. That's deeply problematic, but it's not something that structured itself because the universe was hardwired of <laughs> for-profit prisons in it. Somebody imagined it that way. We could imagine it different. Mm-hmm. And it has to start with that. And, and then following from that, there has to be a whole lot of hard work and a whole lot of like dedicated action and devotion and sacrifice and risk. But all of those things can't start and can't sustain until we have the courage of imagination to believe that the world can be different from what it is. Mm. So what is, what is it that you imagine? And hope for. <laughs> Since you brought us oh, there. Things. <laughs> I just want everybody to love each other. I just want us to start relating to each other from a place of like kindness. And like when we look at our healthcare system, right? Look, healthcare is complicated and a reasonable people and people of conscience can reasonably disagree about what would be the best way to structure a healthcare system. But I would posit that you cannot start from the premise that life is sacred and that we are called to love each other. And starting from that premise, get to where we are, right? Like you cannot build this house on that foundation. They are fundamentally incompatible. And so, I think we have to start with like the courage to tear it all down Mm. or at least to plant the seed of a new beginning and the rotting decaying husk of this tree. Mm. I think the 
when I think about like the failure of the healthcare system, I, I feel like it always comes back to the, these four core failures, right? It's the commodification, the decontextualization, the compartmentalization, and the lack of imagination, hmm. right? Those are the four. Can you, yeah, break those open a little bit for me. So commodification, and this is a simple one, it's healthcare in this country is seen as a product to be bought and sold right? Like, like a hamburger or a used car. Mm. And, and even when you work for a nonprofit hospital, I'm not saying there's no difference. There are some differences sometimes if it's a good nonprofit, but we both know that when you get into these big, like multi-billion dollar nonprofits, the, the difference between that and a for-profit, it gets harder to see. Mm-hmm. Often still there, but it's not super meaningful because these nonprofits are adopting the language and logics of capitalism. Um, and the business models of capitalism, even the word business model, here I am, right? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't know it's wet. And, and we can call ourselves anti-capitalist or we can talk about how capitalism isn't the path forward, but then still we live in this culture. We swim in the sea of capitalism. We naturally adopt this language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's no good way to build a healthcare system that's going to really provide for our needs as, as a community that is primarily driven by profit. Hmm. And so that's the first pillar of, of our failed system is, is commodification, mm-hmm. um, which will always lead to a system that, that fundamentally treats the lives of the privileged as more valuable than the lives of those who are not. Mm-hmm. Then we have decontextualization, which is that the experience of my life as a nurse is very decontextualized from the lived experience of my patients in the community, Hmm. right? We don't see that. We're not trained to see that as part of our purview and part of like our role as nurses and doctors and physical therapists or social workers, right? Like it's really easy to tell somebody, here's what you need to do without making the effort to understand whether or not that plan is realistic in their life. Mm. Mm-hmm. So for example, like you get somebody admitted to the ICU with a new diagnosis, diabetes, and they're in diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a potentially life-threatening complication of, of, of uncontrolled diabetes. And we will pull out all the stops to try to save their life, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're insured or uninsured, we'll do everything we can to get them saved. Mm-hmm. And they might spend four or five days in the ICU, three days, depending on how bad it is. And at the end, after doing everything right, everything we can to save them in the, that context of the acute care environment, at the end, we'll give them a prescription for insulin that costs $800. Wow. We'll tell them to follow up with the primary care doctor that we know damn well they don't have and can't afford. Mm-hmm. And we'll push them out. And a month later or two weeks later, when they went back in the emergency room again with complications of diabetes, rather than saying, wow, like the healthcare system exists to help people become healthier and people aren't becoming healthier. So objectively, maybe our system sucks. Mm. It's always that we blame the patient. And if 
following the failure of that system, you're a patient who is experiencing psychiatric crisis, a patient who was in diabetic ketoacidosis. Yeah. If we look through their charts, what I almost guarantee you, you're going to find following this treatment failure, following their decompensation, is the word non-compliant. And we use to blame the patient for the failures of the system. Wow. That word makes me so fucking sad. <laughs> yeah, right. That is such a failure, right? And I think people feel exhausted when they hear me say this sometimes because what a lot of nurses or doctors will say is like, what do you want us to do? And the trouble is that the way the system is structured, a lot of us feel like there's not that much we can do better because it's so compartmentalized, right? Mm -hmm. The third area is this compartmentalization, right? Where you have these areas of health that exist in their own silos and don't communicate with each other well. And furthermore, even highly intelligent health workers, highly educated health workers who have spent their whole career in one piece of, in one of those silos, who might be really good and really devoted in the silo, they not only don't know what's going on in the other compartments, but they don't even understand how those compartments work, what is and isn't possible, what services are and aren't offered. Mm -hmm. right? So like, and people who spend their whole career in a hospital don't know how the public health system works and what they can and can't do and what they do and don't know. They don't know how, with some exceptions, but in a lot of cases, they don't know how primary care works, right? It used to be if you had a family doctor and you got hospitalized, your family doctor would then see you in the hospital. Now there's good reasons that stopped because hospital care became more complicated and more technological and it became a different skill set for reasons that are not necessarily anyone's fault. And a lot has been gained through that increasing technology and increasing like sophistication. But the downside of that is that like your family doctor doesn't know what happened to you in the hospital. He can't look at that. He can't look it up, right? The hospital, you talk to people who are discharging patients and they'll say, oh, I gave them a list of, of low cost resources in the community. So they're going to be good. And you're like, when was that list updated last? Because it has the Chicanos Policausa Free Clinic on it, which was defunded in 2009. Oh. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. it's like, those, these places aren't taking new patients. These places, some of them don't even exist. Like, yeah. the 15 year old document that you keep photocopying and handing out. Yeah. And like, how is, is just giving someone a piece of paper even relational, right? <laughs> like, but that paper does not exist for the benefit of the patient. Yeah. So that I can check a box in the electronic medical record saying that I gave them a list of resources so that mm. my, right? And so it's like, this is not me trying to blame people who are enmeshed in broken systems for the fact that society is not getting healthier. This is me trying to break, wake up people who are meshing broken systems that we have a duty to demand that the system be fundamentally changed because it's hurting our patients. And we have to talk about it. We have to call it out. And that has been true for a long time, but like COVID has really shined a light on it. Mm. Our ICU is full and I don't think there's but maybe one or two white people in it, right? Wow black and brown folks it's poor folks it's people who didn't have access to good treatment for chronic conditions it's people mm. who are living in crowded environments 
where they're not able to socially isolate because of economic oppression, right? It's, this is who is winding up in the ICU with COVID. And these things were true for a long time, but, but now it's just been really exacerbated. Mm-hmm. And what's more, their access to follow-up care, because let me tell you, you wind up in the ICU, if you survive, you're gonna need a lot of follow-up care before you get back to normal, if you ever get back to normal. Mm-hmm. It has never made sense for us to depend on employer-sponsored healthcare, to have the healthcare tied to your employer. That was always problematic. But now when we have simultaneously an unprecedentedly huge need for good healthcare, and simultaneously this wave of people who have lost their employment, the system that never works is being revealed for the fraud that it was. We've got to recognize that this is a social duty Mm. that making people depend on their employers for it is deeply, deeply problematic. And Mm. um, Mm. we're going to leave a lot of people behind. We're already leaving people behind, but Mm -hmm. it's going to be ugly. God help us. The last one was lack of imagination, which Oh, yeah. We did cover that, right. Okay, so I'm wondering if you can describe a bit of what it's really like in there, in the COVID ICU. I feel like it's like this, uh, in my imagination, I have an ugly imagination of like, people are really suffering and everyone who's working to tend to them are is exhausted. Uh, is that about right? Well, we're doing our best. Yeah. We're trying to take good care of folks. Um, my view of this crisis is skewed because the vast majority of COVID patients don't require level care, and I'm only seeing the ones that do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not trying to make it sound like this is the normative experience of a COVID infection. That said, for that percentage of the population that does wind up in the ICU, maybe six or eight percent of infections oh, yeah. is that need need significant levels of acute care. As many as 12% need to be hospitalized. This, I mean, we don't have the denominator, right? We don't, because testing has been poorly managed, we don't know what the number of cases are, so we can't say exactly the percentage of people who are up in the ICU. But it's, it's numbers that, you know, if I, if I say, if it was 4%, that might sound like a small number to people, but it's quite a lot of people. It's more than we have ICU beds, right? And for those people who do wind up in the ICU, Julia, I haven't seen outcomes this consistently abysmal since 2014. Mm. I spent that year in West Africa running an Ebola treatment. Where were you? Liberia. Mm. People who wind up in the ICU, people who get really sick from COVID, don't do real well. And a lot of people, including some prominent politicians, um, keep parroting this, this statement again and again that, you know, 99% of people are just fine, which I, I can see why somebody who's not medical would think that way, right? Like if a little less than 1% die, then that means 99% are fine. But there's a whole lot of real estate in between just fine and dead, right? Like mm-hmm. in between. And people who wind up in the ICU, a good percentage of them wind up with 
debility that will very likely be permanent. Well, that can mean kidney failure. This can take out your kidneys. Um, and will those people be on dialysis for life? I don't know. This has only been around since February, but probably. Probably the majority of the, of the kidney failure patients are going to be on dialysis for life. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but certainly long-term dialysis is not just fine. When you, when, you, when you came to us with normal kidneys, right? Yeah. A lot of times to save people's lives, we're having to use very high pressure on the ventilators. And if we didn't use that very high pressure, then people would die. But high pressure settings on the ventilator can do damage to your lungs. You can cause something called barotrauma. And um, I wonder how many of my patients will have permanent reductions in lung capacity. We will never again be able to go for a hike without becoming too winded to continue. We discharge people who had been healthy and normal in their late 40s, early 50s, living a normal life. We discharge them to nurses' home, nursing homes with tracheostomies and tubes going into the of the stomachs to put feeding through. People who are too weak to lift their arms. Mm victory because yeah. if we don't call that a victory then we have so few victories to look at oh my word right i mean it's true that all we hear in the news is like oh the death counts are low or getting lower so we're mm -hmm. for fighting this well no we are damp millions of people are walking around with now chronic health conditions as an impact of this pandemic and i i i don't say this to scare people because I don't believe that fear helps people make positive changes in their lives. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, I, I think we, we make changes in our lives based on when we're inspired or when we feel hopeful. But I also need people to understand the truth, which is that this is bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and if people are thinking that 99% of, of COVID cases are coming through just fine, they need to understand that that's a lie. And um, those probably only a little less than 1% die, but a whole lot more people than that wind up permanently disabled. Oh. So Jason, what are ordinary people like me supposed to do about this from your point of view? Like, what do you need? I mean, I'm praying, <laughs> I'm working hard, I'm wearing my mask when I go out, but there's still times, you know, where I'm like, oops, I forgot. <laughs> you and I have a lot in common, which is that we've, the biggest thing we have in common is that we've built a whole life around like building community. We find community to be really sacred mm -hmm. and staying away from your people sucks. Mm -hmm. Like we should all feel empowered to talk about how much that sucks. Like mm -hmm. it's not cool to be isolated from our community. Like yeah. nothing that that's more sacred than surrounding yourself with people that inspire you and that you love. But this is a time for social distancing. It really is. And we got to learn new ways to connect. Um, I hate that. I hate it so much. But I, it makes I, a difference. Yeah. And I mean, I just think about the contrast of like, um, one of one of the most joyous times I ever spent with you was your wonderful wedding, right? Where there were like, I don't know how many hundreds of people there and we were oh, in 400. 400. And it was in um, what, 
Andre House, the Catholic worker, um, soup kitchen in Phoenix, and just a true picture of the kingdom of God, that celebration, you know, of the joy and the feasting and the inclusivity that was present. Um, and now I think of the contrast of your life now and like you you have an infant. I mean, I, is Levi still an infant? He's five months old. I can't believe. I mean, he was born at the beginning of this, of this, of this wild madness. And, and I know that was a really, really tough discernment for you of like, what am I supposed to do to protect my, my wife and my newborn baby and your dad, you know, and like, and yet you are called to tend to these patients. So like the, the compromises and the challenges of that. I don't, I know that like living in, basically what I'm saying is the insular life that I see you having now with your tiny little family and then going to the ICU, like that does, that doesn't match <laughs> the Jason I know. We just got to find new ways to, to experience joy in the world around us. Mm -hmm. It's important that people know that like places that have really robust contact tracing have not traced a lot of cases to, um, for example, protests. They have not traced a lot of cases to um, folks going to the grocery store. Um, what we're learning is that most cases are from prolonged indoor contact. People having dinner parties. Dinner parties <laughs> are the next COVID, right? Um, I don't want people to feel like they have to stay in the house. Go for a walk. Mm -hmm out in nature go for a hike it's safe to go to the park it's safe to go to the mountain it's safe to go to the lake now if you're going to a crowded beach with a thousand people then you probably shouldn't do that <laughs> yeah right so it's not a great we... idea yeah um but um i do want people to keep going outside because mm -hmm. they're not meant to hide indoors and in the end we'll do better job controlling this if we choose something that is sustainable that we can all keep doing for a year then if we say everybody hide from everybody else don't leave the house no matter what and then after two months of that we're like Psh, i can't keep that up no more i'm gonna take my risks mm -hmm. um but wear a mask wash your hands a lot and choose people who have similar levels of exposure one or two of them to be your community and you choose one or two other people who are going to have a super low risk lifestyle and you only associate with each other and all three of you are not cheating <laughs> on the <laughs> right if there's no infidelity then that's reasonably safe and you can yeah. still have friends and see each other and do things together and we need to do that to sustain our souls because right. this is really hard you want to find people who have a similar level of risk to you and find things you can do together outside and ways that you can connect with each other outside and find ways to maintain a couple of friendships and connections because social people are getting real isolated and real depressed and it's real, it's not good. No. Yeah. Yeah. I have just one last question um, that I don't know where this is going to bring you because I know you're not really a man of a creed like I am. <laughs> I, w I mean, I'm, I'm a woman of a creed, not a man. But anyway, um, 
you are a Quaker. And so it's a different, it's a different belief system. And um, yet I know you as a person who loves Jesus <laughs> in your own way. And, and I'm wondering um, what it means to you to be a disciple of Jesus. I think that my understanding of who Jesus was and is, is very different from the very tidy depiction that I carried in my head and in my heart when I was a child. Jesus was somebody who was not afraid to call for systemic change. And he was not afraid to break the rules. And sometimes we're called to break the rules or to um, flip over the tables in the temple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because we need to create a fundamentally different social order. You know, it's, it's always interesting to me how so much of modern Christianity is, is very protective of the status quo. And I don't understand how you read the gospel and get there. The Jews who followed Jesus were living in a state of colonial oppression under an occupying army and they were marginalized and they were hiding out in the caves and the hills and swooping down and making trouble and then going back and wine in the caves and why were so many of them fishermen i mean symbolism aside like you can go out on a boat and and meet with each other and talk and not get arrested for like <laughs> and like plotting against the government right like that's a surprising space if there is one mm -hmm. whereas if you're calling meetings in your house then that's that's going to be trouble there's one story that i always come back to as a nurse um and there's, because I think so much about like my patients, especially with a free clinic and when we deal with refugees and immigrants and people who are locked out of the healthcare system. And it's like, how am I going to get this done? When I was like, no, nope, we can't schedule that. No, we need to see their insurance first, right? There's this part in the Bible where Jesus is preaching in a house in Capernaum. And there's these guys who have a patient and they believe that if they can get the patient to Jesus, he can heal them. And, and if you, I'm told, I don't speak the original languages, but I'm told if you read the original Greek, the, the wording indicates that he had been a paralytic for a long time. So I, in the translations that I read in English, it says he was their friend. But what I know as a nurse is if you've been paralyzed for a long time and you haven't died from an infected pressure sore, you know, this is not something that's polite to discuss in Sunday school, but at best, mm. you know, he had a neurogenic bladder and couldn't, he, like, he at best he was, he was, he was incontinent mm. at work, he had a neurogenic bladder. Somebody was cleaning him without rubber gloves, without disposable chucks, right? Mm. Somebody was turning him at night. If he was, had been paralyzed for a long time and not died of a complication, whatever else he was to them, he was also their patient. Mm -hmm. and they cared for him and they believed if they could get him to Jesus they could get the patient care and so they they carried this bed it doesn't say how far they carried him I, I know that when I'm walking in rural Guatemala people hear that there's doctors and nurses um, in the mountains and they'll carry the sick baby for two days over the mountains or put him in a canoe and row upstream right <laughs> trying to catch up with us it doesn't say how far they carried him. Maybe they were right next door. Maybe they carried him over the mountains. People do that, right? But they got there 
and they couldn't get him in because the house was too crowded. And they pushed and they shoved. And look, they've met the standard of care. They could have just said, like, we did our best. Nobody would have faulted them, <laughs> right? They'd already gone above and beyond. They tried. They're going to sign off that chart, right? Clicked on the <laughs> <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. All the patient non-compliant. <laughs> oh, right, God. It's not their problem. They climbed on the roof of the house and they busted a hole in the roof of the house. Not their house, mate. <laughs> yeah, right. They busted a hole in the roof of someone else's house and they lower the patient through the roof. And, and Jesus says, it's forgiven. And if you look at the sermons from evangelicals online, they always say, well, why did Jesus say it was forgiven? Like, did, did they think that he was paralyzed because he had sinned? And I'm like, are you not actually envisioning this in our head? <laughs> These people were there listening to our sermon. And I, I don't know about you, but like, if you go to a concert and you get a front row seat, it's because you got there early, right? And you're like, <laughs> holding like, <laughs> like, people are like elbowing, like, no, no, I'm, <laughs> right, right. I'm in front, right? And all of a sudden, those chunks of clay and palm fronds falling on your head. <laughs> Right? right, and and some asshole has busted a hole in someone else's roof, <laughs> throwing a bed down, and everyone's got to be pissed. Yeah, right? the crowd wasn't pissed, and and everyone's probably like furious with these people, and she's like, no, no, it's forgiven, it's cool, it's cool. They're with the band, right? <laughs> <laughs> like this was part of the show. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. The Bible focuses on this interaction where Jesus heals the paralytic, and <sighs> look, I don't know much about Jesus. I don't know if he could heal paralytics, but I want to ask, who were these four guys? Yeah. Their story, right? Because yeah. I can't be Jesus. I am not Christ. Like, I'm a messed up, like, imperfect guy who is just trying to figure this out. Mm. But I want to try to understand those guys. Like, mm. what am I telling about them? What is their story? So that's, that's your model of discipleship is those guys. Those guys, that's who I want to be. Yeah. It really doesn't say nothing about them practically, right? Like, they're mm-hmm. a side note to the story, but... Yeah, speak of littleness in the gospel. They're like, yeah, we don't get their narrative at all. You know what? We're all on a journey of continual conversion, aren't we? And you just broke open that story for me in a whole different way, and I thank you for that. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you. Jason, I have tears in my eyes. I'm so touched and moved and inspired and grateful for you. Uh, I'm desperate to meet Levi, <laughs> but no. Oh, you'll meet him. <laughs> and, and I'm really, really thankful for the ways that you model for us how to persevere in the midst of the, the struggle and, and keep you, active Jesus. and imagination. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business, Laura. Thank you. Here. <laughs> hey everyone, it's me, Julia. And whereas most of the interview with Laura sounds like this, her and I just laughing, I am going to just play the highlight about us that we just start to giggle so fast. Okay. Well, anyway, um, you know, you're kind of like the natural fit when I think of who can I talk to who is 
caring for the sick when it comes to the works of mercy. Um, you know, I was, I was sick and you visited me and that's what you do as nurse Laura. I actually got started in nursing when I was in high school. I, uh, there, I heard about the program to become a, a certified nursing assistant, and my older two sisters did that at our, and then I did that throughout high school, and then throughout college, and it actually, it was, it was the most, like, rewarding, amazing experience, and also the most challenging experience. Uh, especially being like a teenager and doing that. And so it kind of actually pushed me away from nursing a little bit. Like I saw how hard the nurses work. Basically our lives overlapped at Loris and that's when we Mm -hmm. first became friends. And then once I was in the education classes and like got out in the schools, I just like felt this, like it just didn't feel right. And I would slowly, I started missing like working in the nursing field. And just, I just felt restless and like, this was not right. And I couldn't figure it out for a while what it was. And I was like trying to get internships elsewhere. I just like felt like I needed to not be there. And like, just, I don't know, like that teaching wasn't what I was supposed to do right then. And then I finally figured it out through talking to people and decided I wanted to go back and go to school for nursing. Well, you know, and when you put it that way, it's interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard you t- describe that shift um, for in that way before, because it really sounds like it was a call. I mean, I believe that nursing is your vocation, mm-hmm. but, but it, the way that you discerned it and you kind of felt like this isn't a fit and there was something restless and you really discerned those spirits and what was deeply going on in you to, to the point where you're like, okay, I need to make a change now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, it was hard. So I work on an oncology floor, more specifically the bone marrow transplant unit. So we help patients that are going through a bone or blood marrow transplant. So it's patients that have very aggressive or severe forms of blood cancers and it's kind of like they've already gone through chemo and gone through a lot and are very ill. And this is kind of the last um, step and chance for them to be able to survive is getting new cells mm-hmm. and get, first getting rid of their old, bad, weak um, cells and then giving them new cells so they can have a chance to, to survive. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the the nurses on the unit, we give the transplants because it's just like a blood, it's almost like a blood transfusion. It mm. just goes into their IV central line. And and so we help them throughout the whole process. They come in a week or so before the transplant and get chemo and get all that. And then we give them the transplant and they stay for about two or three weeks. That's how long the whole process, the whole yeah. treatment is? Is that yeah, long? Yeah, usually they're about, they're about a month-ish. A month-ish. Mm-hmm. So, Yes, you must really get to know them. Yeah, so that's what I really love about it. You really get to know them. Mm -hmm. And the people are there because they really know they need to be and want to be. Mm. And so I feel really grateful that they're there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that they're trusting you to care for them and to 
help support them through this most challenging part of their life, you know? Yeah. 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 And you know, I, um, you obviously know that I, I've been on the receiving end of nursing during an intense time in my life. And, um, even though my parents were nurses and, and obviously like nurses have cared through me, cared for me in different ways throughout my life. I don't think I had such a deep respect for nurses and such the vocation and the tenderness and the, the compassion. Uh, it just really seems to me that the ministry is, is um, well, it's sacred, it's holy. And it's, it's a way that you get to like reverence the, the people of God that, that God puts in your path. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way it felt to me on the receiving end. And I'm wondering though, if that's like what your experience is and, and like how being a nurse, like what that has to do with how you live out your faith or understand yourself as a Christian. Yeah. I even just found this little Bible, Bible verse. If you don't mind, I, if I read it to you, oh, go ahead. Just, it just really kind of speaks to my, like what I feel like every day when I go to work and like what kind of keeps me going as a nurse. Mm. And it's um, Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Mm. And it says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick in prison and visited you? And the king will answer him, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's it. That is exactly where the works of mercy come from. Yeah. yeah, I love that part of scripture, you know, and it, um, I, when I was teaching religion in the high schools, uh, the Catholic high schools, I think I, I really emphasized that passage as well Uh a lot. Um, because it was like mind blowing for me when I realized that the Bible, like this, that's the only part of the Bible that tells us how we're going to get into heaven. Yeah. There's like, there, it's not about like, and I would always say to the kids, like you can memorize the 10 commandments and like recite the Beatitudes and like, you should, you know, that's good. But like, that's not, it's not going to be a pop quiz (laughs) after you die. (laughs) So like, but if you're wondering what the formula is, like, it's not even about going to church on. I mean, not that those yeah. things are great, not important. Like, we want to, you know, worship God, but like, it's actually more about Matthew 25 and mm-hmm. living out that. Are we? How are we tending to to the sick? How are we tending to the prisoner, to the hungry, the thirsty, the naked? And you know, until just hearing you read the scripture now and thinking about your ministry of nursing, I never made the connection that like as a nurse you actually do all those things don't yeah. you feed them you put clothes on them you give them something to drink you're visiting them and they're like in a prison of suffering so yeah. you're yeah. wow 
Like our patients aren't literally allowed to leave their rooms during that time because they're such oh. immune compromised. Like, yeah. you know, they're in that room for all that time and, you know, they're so vulnerable, mm. you know, like stripped them of everything. Wow. You know, that they are letting you into their lives and letting you help them, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. And you just kind of get down to what's really important in life. That's what I always feel like, you know, like it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many degrees you have or, you know, how famous or whatever you are, you know, it's about who we are as people and how we treat one another. And because that's the people you're going to want to spend time with, you know, mm-hmm. like that's, that's what people are going to want, you know, at the end of your when you're lost everything, you know, you're stripped of your health, you're stripped of your clothes, you know, your everything that you had as armor outside. It's like, that doesn't, that stuff really doesn't matter. It's who you are as a person, you know, and mm. that's, that's what always like helps me too. Cause sometimes I'm like, Oh, you know, I should be more successful or I should, you know, be doing this or hmm. that, but I'm like, you know, that really doesn't matter in the end. It doesn't, it's, how you treat others. So it sounds like nursing has really taught you a lot about like how to be true to yourself and like keep Mm -hmm. your, your gaze, you know, your perspective on the right things, your focus on the right things instead of like almost like conforming to the world and all the pressures that our society is putting upon you. So, I mean, to me, that's like the counter cultural call of the gospel is like, it's not about like having the coolest stuff yeah, <laughs> or being yeah. the most popular person. Yeah. It's just about G- doing what Jesus is asking us to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really is. Like, especially like starting doing this when I was in high school and there's so much peer pressure, you know, and mm. you want to be, you know, like, of course I wanted to be more athletic or more a good singer, or, you know, just smarter or whatever. But, mm. you know, it taught me working with these elderly that that's not really what matters, you know, like that's, people aren't going to want to spend time with you when you're old. If you just had a lot of money, you're probably, you know, Mm. like they're going to want to spend time with you if you've had stories to tell and you've gone through struggles and you've, you know, can find meaning through all that. And, Mm. and just being able to like go to bed peacefully, you know, with a clean heart and not thinking about how am I going to make money tomorrow or how am I going to, you know, move up in the world? That's not what's going to carry you through. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about how um, the pandemic has impacted your, your experience as a nurse. I know you're not in a COVID unit, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah. What's it like to, to be nursing during this time? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, I actually, like the very beginning of March, I went to go visit a friend in Tennessee. And this was before, it was like the first of March I went before all the COVID stuff came out about its high risk of transmission and basically that it was in the U.S. and all that. So anyway, I came back and then I like worked the weekend and then it was like Monday morning after the weekend, I was just feeling super, super crummy and yucky and yucky. And then I was like, okay, if I don't feel any better by tomorrow, I'm going to call into work. And I, then they were starting to talk about the COVID after I'd gotten back about, you know, symptoms and what to do if you get 
you feel sick and coming into work. So, but at that point they weren't really testing people. They didn't mm-hmm. have the, the resources to test. So yeah. she's like, I'm going to call it COVID because I was feeling, I was having hot and cold. I had a really bad cough. I was having a little bit of shortness of breath and just felt crummy. So she ordered me an albuterol inhaler to help my lungs and like put a form out there that I could send to work to say to stay home for two weeks and quarantine. So mm. I did that. Um, I know. And I remember it was just, I was just so devastated. I was so worried. Yeah. I, I went through this period where I was like, I, I don't know how I would live without my friend, Laura, you know, Aww. like, and even, even though it was like, I mean, you weren't going to the hospital or anything. It was just, it was all, it was the very beginning and you, yeah, it was like, beginning of it. you're right. And, and so we didn't know, like, we didn't know if every person that got it was going to die or like, it uh, was just, it was so hard. And, um, I was scared and I was like calling, I was contacting practically everybody I knew that I knew was praying a prayerful person and asked them to pray for you. Cause I was so worried. And, Aww. and I, and, and I'm just, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, now here we are in July and there's yeah. been, I don't even know what the current numbers of coronavirus in the United States is, but I know that like, keep track. so many add those into the show notes, the accurate, you know, the latest, yeah. the point is like, when I think about the grief that I felt and you were, you weren't even on, on death's door, you were just sick. And I cared yeah. so much about you. And it makes me concerned about how many people in this country are now grieving and not getting adequate support for it and yeah. not getting the, the love and the care that they need. So, I mean, this is an intense time to be um, taking serious seriously mm-hmm. jesus's command to love one another because like <laughs> everyone needs a lot of love and we have a yeah. lot of work to do <laughs> yeah but you can't go hugging them and <laughs> yeah we can't even like like when i meet someone i want to like shake their hand and i instead of occasionally i'm like uh can we at least do an elbow bump you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then they don't even know that I'm giving them a friendly smile because like it's covered with a mask. And I mean, this is all just so weird. (laughs) (laughs) But you recovered. Thanks be to God. You recovered. It was was really scary. Especially since I have like an autoimmune inflammatory condition. So, Mm. I mean, it, it just changed so much, you know, for a while it was just... Uh, you know, with the quarantine, we were just like nurses and front, you know, frontline healthcare workers were going to work, like us essential people that had to go to work and everybody else was staying home. Mm. And, you know, and now people are coming back and going to work and going about their daily lives. And, you know, and people are forgetting about how much, you know, we sign up to you know, with some degree of risk, we know that as a nurse, but, you know, we just, people have to work with us and do everything they can to help prevent themselves and others from going into the hospital because we see the worst of it, you know, when you come into the hospital, you're really sick and you don't know who's going to get affected. They find, you know, these are people that are perfectly healthy and they end up dying from it. And you know, it's still not how it used to be. We used to be able to, you know, wear a mask, a fresh mask for every patient every time we went in the room, but now there's not enough 
PPE. Oh. So we wear the same mask. We wear it all the time. We wear it for 12 hours straight. Oh, goodness. And well, we can switch it after eight hours. So two masks. And we wear a shield, you know, over our faces. And so our unit, we're already used to infection control and wearing masks. But, you know, we're doing everything we can to keep you safe. But it's not. We, you you need to us as a to team. do stuff yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. So like. As a team, wear your mask when you go out. Everybody wear your mask and social mm-hmm. distance, you know. And wash your hands. You know, like, sanitize. And, and, yes. Yes. Uh, and don't go out if unless you need to and don't go be in a crowd and yeah things, right yeah I know it's hard but just have to protect each other and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and and it's is it's a principle of our faith that like we have to be willing to sacrifice our comforts for the sake mm-hmm. of the other you know, and for the sake of the common good, we all have to do things that are outside of our own desires and comfort zones. Like that's, that's the Christian call. That is a way that we love one another and love our neighbors as, as Christ, as Jesus calls us to. So yeah, I'm thankful for that reminder that it's actually pretty simple. Like we just need to do what the public health officials are telling us to do and cooperate with them. And then we're out. That's a way that we're supporting you in your ministry Mm-hmm. Help keep you safe, right? Yeah, keep everyone mm. safe. Yeah, mm. you know, like what's messy about about living the gospel as a nurse during this time in history? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you told me once what's messy is that you clean up a lot of crap. <laughs> yeah, literally, <laughs> it's literally messy. I think the most important thing, like I still remember when I went to Loris and did a tour around there and I met with a couple education professors and, you know, I was asking for them all kinds of advice and they were basically, they're kind of stressing me out, like how hard being a teacher was and, oh. you know, like it's, it's just very wearing on you, you know, like it's going to beat you down a lot, you know, like it's going to really, but you have to find things to like, to take care of yourself. And self-care is so important, you know, which is equally true Mm. for nurses, you know, like I have, so I really work on that, like taking care of myself physically, emotionally, spiritually, Mm. you know, because if you don't feel good about yourself, then, you know, it's, you don't really, it's a lot harder to be a good nurse, Mm. you know, and just be a good person overall yeah yeah Yeah. so I just you know every day I want to like have peace within myself you know I'm doing my best and Mm -hmm. loving myself and you know life isn't easy we're not all dealt you know easy package but that (laughs) (laughs) yeah most of us are not given an easy ride here right yeah you know and, and I just relate with others so much better. You know, when you go through those tough times, you're like, okay, you know, I can see where you're coming from, or it just helps you have more compassion and empathy. So I try to use, you know, the struggles with mm-hmm. uh, like, okay, then there's more, more yeah. things to share stories over and to share life with one another, you know? Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that reminder that we do, in order to love others, we really need to be loving ourselves, you know, in the mm-hmm. great commandment, like, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah. Not like love your neighbor, then love yourself, yeah. <laughs> but as you're loving yourself, like at the same time. And, and it is this balance. Like I think in our society where we're sometimes taught to, and especially women, I think we're like, yeah, we got to give that. so, so much. And then uh-huh. you take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. But rather, like, wouldn't it be great if like, we realized like, it's not a one then the other, but it's a both at the same time. Yes. Yourself this, first. Mm-hmm. And then your children are your Yeah. Because if you aren't, you know, it's, you're not helping anybody really, you know, if you don't mm-hmm. take care of yourself. So yeah, constant struggle. It's you, part of the gospel, the messiness mm-hmm. of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Laura, for this time together yeah. and for all you're beautiful. doing to love God's beautiful people in the hospital in Minnesota and for being my friend for all these years. <laughs> I know, 19. <laughs> I love you, Laura. I love you so much. <laughs> thank you, dear. Yeah, thank you. That's episode eight of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and please leave us a review. And I'd love it if you supported us on Patreon. It actually cost about 20 bucks to produce each episode, so I could use the help. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. Peace.